BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Chapter 22. A Daring Undertaking of the Lost City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lost City by Joseph E. Badger, Jr. Chapter 22 A Daring Undertaking Still, that point was of too vital importance to justify hasty decision, and the professor did not make his surrender complete until the shades of another night were beginning to gather over the land. Meantime, partly for the purpose of keeping the youngsters employed, and thus out of the way of less harmless things, the professor suggested that the huge grizzly be flayed. If the proposed scheme should really be undertaken, that mighty pelt, if uncomfortable to convey, would serve as a fair excuse for the young brave's as yet unexplained absence from the lost city. As a matter of course, Cooper Edgecombe felt intense anxiety through all, but he contrived to keep fair mastery over his emotions, readily admitting that he himself could do naught towards visiting the lost city. I know that my loved ones are yonder. I would joyfully suffer ten thousand deaths by torture for the chance to speak one word to them. And yet I know any such attempt would prove fatal to us all. The mere sight of—I could go crazy with joy. There is no necessity for repeating the various arguments used, pro and con, before the final agreement was reached. Enough has already been put upon record, and the result must suffice. Professor Featherwit yielded the vital point, and, having once fairly expressed his fears and doubts, flung his whole heart into perfecting the disguise which was now counted upon to carry Bruno safely into and out of yonder city. He was carefully trigged out in the warlike uniform secured by Cooper Edgecombe at the cost of a human life and, with fresh stain applied to his face and hands, the slight moustache he wore was not dangerously perceptible. "'Twould take a strong light and mighty keen eyes to see it at all, and even if a body should happen to notice it, he'd reckon to a spit of smut or the like,' generously declared Waldo. Under less trying circumstances, Bruno might have answered in kind, but now he merely smiled at the jester, then turned again to receive the earnest cautions he let fall for his benefit by the professor. Above all else he was to steer clear of fighting, and without 
he saw a fair chance of winning speech with the white women, he was to keep in such hiding as Ixtli might furnish, trusting the young Aztec to post the children of the sun as to what was in the wind. Tremulous, almost incapable of coherent speech, so intense was his agitation, Cooper Edgecombe sent many messages to his loved ones, begging for one word in return, and if nothing less would serve— his voice choked, and only his feverishly burning eyes could say the rest. It was well past sunset ere the youngsters set forth from the rendezvous, accompanied a short distance by both Waldo and the professor, but the parting came in good time. It would be worse than folly to add to the existent perils that of possible discovery by some prowling Aztec who might work serious injury to them one and all. That great bear-hide proved a tax upon their strength, even though the bullet-riddled headpiece had been carefully cut off and buried, lest those queer holes tell a risky tale on close examination. But Ixtli, as well as Bruno, was upborne by an exaltation such as neither had known before this hour. There was nothing worse than the natural obstacles in the way to be overcome, and knowing every square yard of ground so thoroughly, Ixley chose the most practicable route to that hill-encircled town. The stony pass was followed to the lower level, and the young adventurers had drawn fairly near the first buildings, ere encountering a living being, and then ample time was given them for meeting the danger. A low-voiced call sounded upon the night air, and Ixley responded in much the same tone. Bruno, of course, was utterly in the dark as to what was being said, but he still held perfect faith in his copper-hued guide and left all to the son of Azotl. The Aztec brave appeared to be explaining his unusually protracted absence, for he proudly displayed the great grizzly pelt, then exhibited the spearhead from which protruded the tooth-marked wound. Like one who was already familiar with the details, Bruno slowly lounged forward a pace or two, then in silence awaited the pleasure of his companion on that night jaunt. Ixley was not many minutes in shaking off the Indian, and, almost staggering beneath his shaggy burden, moved away as though in haste to rejoin his family circle. Fortunately for the venture, the Aztecans appeared to believe in the maxim of going to bed early, for there were very few individuals astir at that hour, young though the evening still was, and by the clear moonlight which fell athwart the valley, it was no difficult task to catch sight before being seen, where eyes so busy as those of the two young men were concerned. Only once were they forced to make a brief detour in order to escape meeting another redskin, and then a guarded whisper from the lips of the Aztec warned Bruno that they were almost at the Teocalili, wherein the children of the sun made their home and abiding place. Leaving the grisly pelt at a corner for the time being, Ixley led his white friend up and into the temple of the sun, pressing a hand by way of added caution. Although he had declared that an armed guard was kept night and day over the sun-children, and that he hoped to pass Bruno as well as himself without any serious difficulty, since he had long been a favoured visitor, and ever welcomed by Victo and Gladi, the temple was seemingly without such protection upon the present occasion. Ixley expressed great surprise when this fact became evident, 
and he showed uneasiness as to the welfare of his beloved patroness and kindly teacher. Surely something evil was impending. His father, Azotl, was chieftain of the guards and wholly devoted to the sun-children, ready at all times to risk life in their behalf. Now, if the usual guards were lacking, surely it portended evil, treachery, no doubt, at the bottom of which the Paba and the Tzin almost certainly lurked. All this Ixli contrived to convey to Bruno, who fairly well shared that anxiety, but who was more far going ahead with a bold rush to learn the worst as quickly as might be. Still, unfamiliar with the construction of the temple as he was, Bruno felt helpless without his guide, and so timed his progress by that of Ixli, right hand tightly gripping the handle of his handwood, or maquahuitl, resolved to give a good account of either of those rascally varlets in case trouble lay ahead. The unwanted desolation which appeared to reign on all sides was plainly troubling the Aztec brave, and he seemed to suspect a cunning ambuscade, judging from his slow advance, pausing at nearly every step to bend ear in keen listening. Still nothing was actually seen or heard until, after the young men reached the upper elevation, upon a portion of which the sun-children had been first sighted by the air-voyagers. Here the first sound of human voices was heard, and Bruno stopped short in obedience to the almost fierce grip which Ixley closed upon his nearest arm, listening for a brief space, then breathing, lowly. "'We see first. That good. Him see first. That bad. I, ear, two both. You know, brother?' "'You mean—' "'That we are to listen and play spy first, Ixley?' asked Bruno, scarcely catching the real meaning of those hurried words. "'Yes, that best. Come, step like snowfalls, brother.' "'Who is it first? "'Victor, she won. "'Other man, not no sure, but think what's in. "'He bad. All bad. Kill him some day. That good. Plenty good all over.' This grim vow appeared to do the Aztec good from a mental point of view, and then he led his white friend silently towards the covered part of the Tuacalili, from whence those sounds emanated. Curtains of thick stuff served to shut in the light and to partly smother the sound of voices, but Ixley cautiously formed a couple of peepholes of which they quickly made good use. A portion of the sacred fire was burning upon its special altar, while a large lamp formed of baked clay was suspended from the roof, shedding a fair light around, as well as perfuming the enclosure quite agreeably. Almost directly beneath this hanging lamp stood the two children of the sun, one tall, stately, almost queenly of stature, and now looking unusually impressive, as she seemed to act as shield for her daughter, slighter, more yielding, but, ah, how lovely of face and calmly of person! Even then Bruno could not help realizing those facts, although his ears were tingling sharply with the harsh accents falling from a far different pair of lips, those of a tall, muscular warrior, whose form was gorgeously arrayed in feather-work and cunning weaving, rich-hued dyes having been called to aid the other arts as well. If this was actually the Prince Hua, then he was a most brutal sample of Aztec and aristocracy, 
and at first sight Gillespie felt a fierce hatred for the harsh-toned chieftain. As a matter of course, Bruno was unable to comprehend just what was being said, thanks to his complete ignorance of the language employed, but he felt morally certain that ugly threats were passing through those thin lips, and even so soon his hands began to itch and his blood to glow, both urging him to the rescue. Swiftly fell the reply made by Victo, and her words must have stung the prince to the quick, since he uttered a savage cry, drawing back an arm as though to smite that proudly beautiful face with his hard-clenched fist. That proved to be the capshif, for Bruno could stand no more. He dashed aside the heavy curtain as he leaped forward, giving a stern cry as he came, swinging the war-club over his shoulder to strike with all vengeance at the startled and recoiling Astican. Only the young man's unfamiliarity with the weapon preserved Prince Hua from certain death. As it was, he reeled to fall in a nerveless heap upon the floor, while, with a startled cry, another Aztec broke away in flight. End of chapter 22「that sudden appearance and flight of another man took Ixley even more by surprise than it did Bruno, for he never even suspected such a possibility, knowing Prince Hua so well. Still the young brave was swift to rally, swift to pursue, sending a menace of certain death in case the fleeing cur should not yield himself. Just then Bruno had eyes and thoughts for the sun-children alone, who quite naturally shrunk back in mingled surprise and alarm at his unceremonious entrance. He forgot his disguise, forgot everything save that before him stood the fair beings whom he had vowed to save at all hazards from what appeared to him worse by far than actual death. Gillespie never knew just what words crossed his lips during those first few seconds, but he saw that the women, in place of eagerly accepting his aid, were visibly shrinking, apparently more alarmed than delighted with the opportunity thus offered. Doubtless this was caused mainly by that odd blending of Aztec and pale-face, the color and garb of the one joined to the tongue of the other, but the result might have been even worse, had not Ixley hastened back to clear up more matters than one. In spite of his utmost efforts, the second Indian had escaped with life, although he received a glancing wound from an arrow as he plunged down towards the lower level, and nothing seemed more certain than that an alarm would ride speedily spread throughout the town, if only for the purpose of hurrying succor to the Lord Hua. All this rolled in swift words over Ixley's lips, his warning finding completion before either of the women could fairly interrupt the young brave. But then the one whom Ixley termed Victo spoke rapidly in his musical tongue, one strong white hand waving towards the now somewhat embarrassed Gillespie. He, friend, come save you, like save Ixley. 
the Aztec hurriedly made reply, with generous tact speaking so that Bruno could comprehend as well as the women. He good, all good. Papa bad, tin more bad. Be worse bad if stay here, Victor Gladi. Thus given the proper cue, Bruno took fresh courage, and, in as few words as might be, explained his mission. He spoke the name of Cooper Edgecombe, and for the first time that queenly woman showed signs of weakness, staggering back with a faint choking gasp, one hand clasped spasmodically above her madly throbbing heart, the other rising to her temples as though in fear of coming insanity. "'He is well. He is safe and longing for his loved ones.' Bruno swiftly added, producing the brief note which the exiled aeronaut had pressed into his hand at almost the last moment. He wrote you that, here it is, and— "'Make hurry, quick!' sharply interposed Ixley, as ominous sounds began to arise without the temple of the sun-god. "'Dog, get away! Half for more! Come here! Kill like gods be glad!' With an evident effort, Victor rallied, tones far from steady, as she begged both young men to save themselves without thought of them. "'I thank you. Heaven alone knows how overjoyed I am to hear from my dear husband, my poor child's own father, and he is near, too. But go, go! God and protect him, Ixley, for—go, I implore you, sir!' "'But how? We haven't arranged how you are to be rescued, and I must understand—' "'Later, then, another time, through Ixley!' interrupted Mrs. Edgecombe, since there could no longer be a doubt as to her identity. "'If found here, it will be our ruin as well as your own. Go, and at once I fear that Lord Hua may—' "'He live yet,' pronounced Ixley, rising from a hasty examination of the fallen chieftain. "'That bad, much more worse bad. He dog all over dog.' "'And I greatly fear he must have recognized you as one of a foreign race, in spite of your disguise,' added the elder woman, trouble in her face, even as it showed in her voice. "'He will be wild for revenge, and I fear. Go, and directly, Ixley!' Bruno Gillespie was only too well assured that this latest fear had foundation on truth. Swiftly, though he had wielded the awkward to him, Handwood, Watson had sufficient time to sight his assailant, and almost certainly had divined at least a portion of the truth. Doubtless it would have been the more prudent course to repeat that blow with greater precision, but Bruno could not bring himself to do just that, even though the ugly cries were growing in volume on the ground level, and he felt that capture would be but the initial step to death, in all likelihood upon the great stone of sacrifice. Eminent though their peril surely was, Bruno could not betake himself to flight without at least partially performing the duty for which he had volunteered, and so he took time to hurriedly utter. "'Watch from the top of the tower for the airship, and be ready to leave at any moment. I implore you both!' For even now his admiring gaze could with difficulty be torn away from yonder younger, even more lovely visage, although as yet— the maiden had spoken no word, even shrinking away from this strangely speaking Aztec as though in a fright. "'Come, brother, or too late,' urged Ixley, almost sternly. "'Save you, or glass-eyes call Ixley dog-liar. Come, must run, no fight, too big many for that.' And so it seemed, when the young men rushed away from the lighted interior and gained the uncovered space beyond— Loud cries came soaring through the night from different directions, and dim, phantom-like shapes could be glimpsed in hurrying confusion. 
Apparently the majority only knew that trouble of some description was brewing, and that the center of interest was either in or near the temple of the sun-god. Yet that was more than sufficient to place the white intruder in great peril, despite the elaborate disguise he wore. Then, with awful abruptness, there came a sound which could only be likened to rolling thunder by one uninitiated, uninitiated, but which caused Ixley to shrink and almost cower, ere gasping. The great war drum! Now, must go! Sacrifice if caught! Come, white brother, see dat more bad now! Those mighty throbs rolled and reverberated from the hills, filling the night air with waves of thunder, nonetheless awe-inspiring now that their true import was realized. The entire population was aroused, and each building seemed to cast forth an armed host, while, as through some magic touch, a circle of fire sprung on all sides, beginning to illumine both valley and barrier. Bruno stood like one appalled, really fascinated by this transformation scene for which he had been so poorly prepared, but Ixley better comprehended their situation, and, gripping an arm, he muttered hastily, "'Come, brother, stop more, make too late. Must hide now. That stop go back way came. Come!' Bruno roused himself with an effort, then yielded to the Aztec's guidance, crouching low as the brief bit of clear moonlight had to be traversed. Instead of making for the steps, which as customary reached from terrace to terrace at each corner, Ixley crept to the centre, where the temple side was cast into deepest shadow, then lowered himself by his arms to drop silently to the broad path below. A whispered word urged Bruno to imitate this action, and those friendly hands caught and steadied Gillespie as he took the drop and so one after another the mighty steps were passed, both young men reaching the ground at the same instant, having succeeded in leaving the temple of the sun-god without being glimpsed by an Indian of all those whom the sonorous drum-throbs had brought forth in arms. "'Whither now?' asked Bruno in guarded tones as he looked forth from shadow into moonlight, seeing scores upon scores of armed shapes flitting to and fro, all looking for the enemy, yet none able to precisely locate the trouble. Just then a savage yell broke from the top of the temple, followed by a few fierce-sounding sentences, which Ixley declared came from the Lord Hua, then adding, "'He say kill if catch, but that—no, come, white brother, Ixley show how play fool that dog, yes!' "'All right, my hearty. Is it a break for the hills? I reckon I can break through. If not, well, I'll leave some marks behind me anyway.' "'No, no, that bad. Can't go to hills. Must hide,' positively declared the young Aztec. "'Come now. Me show good place. All dead but we.' Evidently trusting to pass undetected where so many others were rushing back and forth in seeming confusion, Ixley broke away from the shadow of the temple, closely followed by Gillespie, heading as directly as might be for the strange refuge which he now had in mind. That proved to be a low, unpretending structure, which was of no great extent, so far as Bruno's hasty look could ascertain. Still, that was not the time for doubting the wisdom of his guide, nor a moment in which to discuss either methods or means, and as Ixley passed through a massive entrance, the pale face followed, giving a little shiver as the barrier swung to behind them. "'What sort of a place is it, anyway, Ixley?' 
he demanded, but the Aztec was too hurried for words just then, save enough to warn his companion in peril that they must descend deeper into the earth. It was more of a scramble than a deliberate descent, for the gloom was complete and Bruno had no time in which to feel for steps or stairs. Only for the aiding touch of his guide he must have taken more than one awkward tumble ere that lower level was attained. Then a breathing spell was granted him, and, while Ixley bent ear in listening to discover if pursuit was being made, Bruno drew a match from the liberal supply he had taken the precaution to fetch along, and striking it, held aloft the tiny torch to view their present surroundings. Only to give an involuntary start and cry, as he caught indistinct glimpses of fleshless bones and grinning skulls, those grim relics of mortality showing upon every side, as his wild eyes roved around. Then a hand struck down the match, and a swift voice breathed, "'They come this way! See us hide! Come hunt! Now to kill!' End of chapter 23 Chapter 24 The Sun Children's Peril of the Lost City This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lost City by Joseph E. Badger, Jr. Chapter 24 The Sun Children's Peril Not until the two young men passed beneath those heavy curtains did either one of the sun-children really give thought to their own possible peril, but stood close together, arm of mother about daughter, as they listened to the ominous sounds without, so rapidly growing in force and number. Then, just as the deep tones of the war-drum boomed forth upon the night air, the fallen Aztec betrayed signs of rallying wits, giving a low sound which might have been groan of pain or curse of baffled rage. Be that as it may, the sound served one purpose. Victoria Edgecombe, to append her correct name for the first time, drew her child farther away, her right hand reaching forth to pluck a light yet effective spear from where it lay against the wall. "'Mother! Mother!' faintly panted the maiden, plainly at a loss to comprehend all that had so recently transpired. "'What is it? What does it all mean? Surely that was Ixley, and—the other!' "'A messenger from your father, child, and—my father! I thought—he is not dead!' "'Thanks be to heaven, not dead!' with hysterical joy, in face as in voice. "'Alive and seeking us, Gladys, coming to rescue us from this death in life, and now, to your knees, my daughter, to thy knees, and lift thanks unto the good father who has at last listened to my moans.' Again the war-drum boomed forth in an awesome roll, but all unheeding that ominous sound, paying no attention to the stirring of yonder savage, whose lacerated scalp was painting his face a deeper red than even nature intended, mother and daughter sank to their knees, lifting hands and hearts towards the all-powerful, even as their gratitude floated towards the throne of grace. Then arose the hoarse tones of Huatzin, bidding his allies find and slay without mercy, cursing the treacherous Aztec who had thus guided one of a strange tribe into the very heart of their beloved city. 
With a short, fierce ejaculation, Victo sprang to her feet, right hand once again grasping shaft of javelin, its copper point gleaming rudely in the rays of lamp, as though already moistened by the heart-blood of yonder villain. Far differently acted the maiden, her figure trembling with fear and wonder commingled, her lips slightly blanched as she clung closer to her mother. Yet through all ran a touch of girlish curiosity, which helped shape the words now crossing her lips. "'Who was it, mother? Who could the stranger be? And whither has he gone?' "'With Ixley, my child, and may the good God of our own people grant them both life and liberty. If I thought—' "'Your father, Gladys, alive and looking for his beloved ones. See, from his own dear hand, and he says, "'Hold, who comes there?' But the alarm appeared to be without actual foundation, for the sounds came no closer, remaining beyond the drapery past which Lord Hua had staggered only a few brief seconds before. Gladys rallied more speedily than one might have expected, and she spoke with even greater interest than at first. "'My dear father! And alive! Oh, mother, why is he not here, too? Why should he send another? And that one, he spoke our dear language, mother. Surely he is not—not as Ixley.' "'No, he was of our own people, child, and I can hardly conceive how he came hither, save that Ixley must have acted as guide.' "'And those awful warriors!' Shivering as the war-cries followed the muffled roar of the great drum. "'If found, he will be slain!' "'Do you think there is any hope for him, mother? And he seemed so—so—' "'He is gone with Ixley, and Ixley is true to the very core,' Victor hastened to give assurance. "'I would rather trust him than many another of thrice his years and warlike experience. Ixley is true, aye, as true and tried as his father, Azotl. "'Who loves you, mother, and would win—' "'Hush, child!' Just a bit sharply interposed, the elder woman, yet at the same time tightening, that loving clasp, merely as the daughter of his sun-god, Quetzalcoatl, and— huh. Once again there came the echoes of rapid footfalls beyond the heavy draperies, and again this Amazonian mother drew her superb form in front of her shrinking child, poising the javelin in readiness for stroke or casting as might serve best. A strong arm brushed the curtains, aside sufficiently to admit its owner's passage, but the armed warrior stopped short at sighting the sun-children, his proud head lowering, hands crossing over his broad bosom in token of adoration, for it surely was more than mere submission to one held his superior. With a low cry, Victo drew back a bit, weapon lowering as she recognized friend in place of enemy. "'It is you, Azotl?' she spoke in mellow tones. I thought—did you remove the usual guards this evening?" "'The blame falls to my share, son-child,' the Red Heron made answer, with a meekness strange in one of his build and general appearance, that of a king among ordinary warriors. "'Not justly, nor through fault of your own, my good and true friend,' the elder woman made haste to give assurance. "'Not even thy lips shall speak slander of Azadol, the true heart, my brother.' With a swift advance, the red heron caught the unarmed hand to bend over it until his lips barely brushed the soft, perfumed skin. Then he sank to one knee, bowing his head until his brow touched the floor beneath her sandaled feet. 
Swiftly, gracefully, these movements were made, and where they would have appeared fulsome or degraded in some, with this warrior the effect was far from disagreeable to see or to experience. Victo flushed warmly and drew back a little farther, for the memory of those words let fall by Gladys came back with unpleasant distinctness. And was she so certain that Azotl looked upon her as merely a god-descended priestess? The red heron arose easily, head rising proudly above his shapely shoulders, as he met those great blue eyes, eyes as pure and as fathomless as the cloudless sky in midsummer. And then, more like one giving a bare statement of facts than one offering a defense for himself, Azotl spoke of a faithless subordinate who was guilty of either careless neglect or worse. It may be that Tiscatl lost his wits through strong waters, son-child, or even that he took evil pay from still more vile hands. You have seen the last of him, though, child of Quetzatl. You surely do not mean that! Azotl lightly tapped the knife-hilt showing above his maxtlatl, coldly adding words to that significant gesture. There is no place for fool or traitor upon the bodyguard of the sun-children. "'Tis Cattle sinned, he has paid full forfeit, and just so shall all others perish who dare cast an evil glance towards—ha!' Another outcry arose from the other side of the curtained recess, and the red heron instantly sprang away in that direction, hands gripping weapons in readiness for instant use in case of need. Almost as swiftly— Victo and the maiden followed, one through fear, the other through utter lack of fear, for herself. Those savage cries came from the lips of none other than the chieftain, whose now bare head bore significant traces of Bruno Gillespie's handiwork, and he seemed bent on rushing directly into the presence of the sun-children, until Red Heron interposed, stern and icy-toned. "'Stand back, my lord Hua,' he ordered, left hand advanced with open palm, but its dexter mate armed and ready for hot work if that must come. Venture no closer on thy peril, chief. Watson recoiled a bit, though that might have been more through surprise than because he feared this proud warrior. He gripped his knife-hilt and partly drew the blade from its supporting sash, a hissing oath escaped his lips, and he crouched a trifle, as a wild beast gathers its deadliest force prior to making a death-leap. "'Darest thou bar my path, Azotl?' he cried hoarsely. "'Make way, I bid thee! Make way, for I will see the sun-children, and—' "'Not so, my lord Hua,' coldly interrupted the master of guards, that warning palm still turned to the front. You are here without law or leave, and know what the edict says. From the going to the return of the sun, these stones are sacred from all feet, save those of the sun-children and their regular bodyguard. What care I for laws, or for such as thou, Red Heron? I will that such a thing shall be, and it comes to pass. And thou dare to bar my way, Azotl. Ay, by words, if they prove sufficient— by force, if called for, by death, if worst must come, even the death of a mighty chieftain, like Lord Hua, would not be too great a feat. For a brief space it seemed as though Huatzin would make a leap too, which there would be but one termination, death to one or to both. But Azotl coldly spoke on. 
I have given you fair and friendly warning, Lord Hua. Go now, while the path of peace lies open. Go, else I sound the call, and my guard will take you in charge, just as they would any other rascally intruder. Your precious son, for instance, retorted the Tsin viciously. He came with one whom, one of a different race from our own, Azotl, a traitor in thine own family, yet thou darest hint at— Azotl lifted a bent finger to his lips, sounding a shrill, far-penetrating whistle. The response was prompt indeed, an armed force advancing with weapons held ready, awaiting only word from commander, to punish that rash intruder by hurling him to death over the terraces. Although nearly beside himself with fury, Watson glared defiance at both guard and its commander, then turned more directly upon the sun-children, speaking in savage tones. Unto you, proud Victor, I'll either win you as my— Go on, Lord Hua, coldly spoke the woman as his voice choked. I'll win and wear you as my squaw, or else give you to the stone of sacrifice. He snarled, then turned away as Azotl motioned his guards to clear the temple of all intruders, then see that none other dared enter. End of chapter 24 Chapter Twenty Five Waldo Goes Fishing of the Lost City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lost City by Joseph E. Badger, Jr. Chapter Twenty Five Waldo Goes Fishing. It was with stronger forebodings than he dared acknowledge even to himself that Professor Featherwit watched the two young men out of sight in the early gloom and scarcely had his nephew passed beyond hearing than Uncle Phaeton would gladly have recalled Bruno. Waldo made light of all fears, prophesying complete success, and even going so far as to predict Bruno's return accompanied by the Children of the Sun, enthusiastic words which set the exile to trembling with excess of joy and anticipation. What, then, was the blank dismay of all when, floating through the night, came the hollow throbbing of yonder mighty war-drum, fetching each person to his feet and holding him spellbound for the first few seconds? Cooper Edgecombe turned sick at heart, even while ignorant as to the method of sending forth that alarm, his hollow groan being the first sound to follow the simultaneous exclamation, which burst from three pairs of lips as the surprise came. And, but a breath later, Waldo broke forth with the excited query, "'What is it? What's broken loose now? Surely! Thunder!' Only Professor Phaeton at once recognized the sound, through description, and each one of those swiftly succeeding strokes seemed falling upon his heart, bidding him mourn for his beloved nephew, upon whom his aged eyes had surely looked their last in this life. Yet it was the professor who took prompt action, speaking sharply as he darted across to where the airship rested. Come, get aboard, and let us do what lies in our power. It was criminal to send the poor lad into the jaws of death, but now—hasten, there may be a chance, even yet. 
The call was still hot upon his lips when his two companions entered the aerostat, gripping tight the handrail as Professor Featherwit sent the vessel afloat with reckless haste. As by a miracle they escaped disaster through rushing into a bushy treetop, and that fact served to steady the aeronaut's nerves. "'On guard, Uncle Phaeton!' cried Waldo, making a lucky snatch at his cap, which one of the stiff boughs brushed off his head. "'Aye, aye, lad!' responded the men at the guiding gear, as the airship shot onward and upward, now heading as directly as was practicable for the lost city of the Aztecs. "'That was the very lesson I needed. I am steady of nerve now, and will show no lack. Heaven grant that we may not be forever too late, though.' "'What do you reckon could have kicked up such a bobbery, uncle? And what—ugh!' as the wardrum's throbbings again swelled forth in grim alarm. "'What in time is that, anyway?' As briefly as might be, the professor explained, and almost for the first time Waldo felt a thrill of dread. "'If they've got Bruno, what will they do with him?' That very dread was worrying Uncle Phaeton, and already through his busy brain were flashing horrid pictures of punishment and sacrifice, of hideous scenes of torture, wherein the eldest son of his dead sister played a prominent role perforce. He dared not trust his tongue to make answer, just then, and sent the aeromotor onward at top speed, leaning far forward to win the earliest glimpse of what? He caught sight of blazing beacons fairly encircling the lost city, forming a cordon through which no stranger could hope to pass unseen. He beheld hundreds of armed shapes rushing to and fro, plainly looking for some intruder or other enemy, yet almost as certainly failing as yet to make the longed-for discovery. Not until that moment had Uncle Phaeton dared indulge in even the shadow of a hope. The awful alarm seemed proof conclusive that poor Bruno had been taken through the treachery of Ixley. Naturally enough, that was his first belief, but now, as the airship slackened pace to circle more deliberately above the valley, all eyes on the eager watch for either Bruno or something to hint at his fate, Professor Featherwit lost a portion of that conviction. If Bruno had indeed fallen victim to misplaced confidence, and had been craftily lured into this den of ravening wild beasts, why all this confusion and mad scurry? Why had not the traitor first made sure of his victim? Why such a general alarm? Although such haste in getting afloat had been made, some little time had been thus consumed, and before the aerostat was fairly above the lost city, Bruno and Ixley had dropped by stages down the shadowed side of the temple of the sun-god, to burrow underneath the ground as their surest method of eluding pursuit. Only for that the end might have been different, for, once sighted, Gillespie would have been rescued by his friends, or those friends would surely have shared death with him. And so it came to pass that, circle though they might, calling ears to supplement their eyes, swooping perilously low down in their fierce eagerness to sight their imperiled one, never a glimpse of the young man could they obtain, nor even a definite hint as to where next to look for him. "'Surely they cannot have captured Bruno as yet,' huskily muttered Uncle Phaeton, hungrily straining his eyes without reward. If the poor boy had actually fallen into such evil hands, why such crazy confusion? Why, oh, why did I permit his coaxings to overpower my better judgment? Why did I send him into— 
the words stuck in his throat and refused to issue. Phaeton Featherwit just then felt himself little less than a cold-blooded assassin. Mr. Edgecombe was but little less deeply stirred, although his feelings were more of a mixture. He grieved for Bruno, and would willingly risk his life in hopes of doing the young man a service, yet his gaze was drawn far more frequently towards yonder temple on the top of which he had— Surely he had caught sight of his wife, his daughter. "'Let me down and try to find him,' he eagerly begged, as one might plead for a great boon. "'I promise to save him, if yet alive, and let me try, Professor. I beg of you to give me this chance to show my heartfelt gratitude.' But Professor Featherwit shook his head in negation. "'That would only add to our trouble, friend. Knowing nothing of the dialect, you would be wholly at a loss.' and looking so entirely different in every respect, how could you hope to pass inspection? All seems so confused that I might. Surely it is worth trying. It would be suicidal, so say no more on that score. Almost harshly spoke the usually mild-mannered aeronaut, sending his vessel upon another circuit, only with stern vigilance choking back the appealing shout to his lost nephew. This time the aerostat was brought directly above the Temple of the Sun, where there appeared to be some unusual disturbance, a number of armed guards fairly driving a gaily arrayed Indian down to the lower levels, and that greatly against his inclinations, judging from the harsh cries and ringing threats which burst from his lips. Recognizing the building, and unable to hold his intense emotions longer under stern control, Cooper Edgecombe called aloud the names of his wife and daughter— begging that they might come to him, but then the airship was sent onward and upward with a dizzying swoop and Professor Featherwit gripped an arm, sternly speaking. "'Quiet, sir! Another outbreak like that, and I'll lock your lips if I have to send a bullet through your mad brain!' "'I forgot. I could not wait longer, knowing that my loved ones—' "'You forgot that the lives of all depend upon our remaining at liberty,' coldly interrupted Featherwit. Without this means of conveyance, how can your loved ones escape? Now, your solemn pledge to maintain utter silence, or I will take you back to yonder wilderness, leaving you to shift for yourself as best you can. Promise, sir! I will, I do. Forgive me, for I was carried away by— "'Twas there I saw, after so many horrible years!" Huskily muttered the exile, fairly cowering there before his saviour from the whirlpool. Enough! Bear in mind that the rescue of your loved ones depend on our efforts. If discovered by yonder snarling beasts, and the machine is injured, farewell all hopes. Now, quiet and look for Bruno. Again the airship circled over the valley, in spite of the moonlight passing wholly unseen and unsuspected by the Aztecs, whose energies were bent on ferreting out mortal foes, not demons of the upper world. Waldo leaned farther over the handrail as they floated closer to an excited group of warriors, the central figure being Lord Hua himself, fiercely denouncing Azotl and his son Ixli as traitors to the common welfare and calling upon all honest braves to met forth befitting punishment. Professor Featherwit caught one name indistinctly, that of the young Aztec in whose company Bruno had set forth on his ill-starred venture— and hoping to learn more of importance, he caused the aerostat to hover directly above that particular group of redskins. 
Waldo, never stopping to count the risk he might thus fetch upon them all, silently lowered the grapnel by means of the drag-rope, giving a boyish chuckle as the three-pronged hook descended amidst that gathering, the sight causing more than one superstitious brave to leap aside with cries of amazed affright. The airship gave a sudden swoop, and the grapnel caught Watson by his girdle, jerking him fairly off his feet and swinging him into air, pretty much as a youngster might land a writhing fish. But no fish ever sent forth so wild a screech of mingled rage and terror as split the air just then. Although hardly realizing what was happening, Professor Featherwit sent the aeromotor upward with a mighty jerk. The shock proving too much for that sash, Lord Hua fell back to earth, literally biting the dust, although he met with no bodily harm beyond sundry bruises. "'Caught a sucker, and—I'll never do it again, uncle!' exploded Waldo, as he swiftly hauled in his novel fish-line, but he had to take a severe lecture from the professor before the subject was finally dropped. And, worse than all else, the air-demon was now the target for both eyes and arrows, and, perforce, sailed swiftly away into the night. End of chapter 25 Chapter 26 Down Among the Dead This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lost City by Joseph E. Badger, Jr. Chapter 26 Down Among the Dead Ixley spoke with a degree of earnestness which left no room for doubt, even if the young man's own keen sense of hearing had not given warning but an instant later. Ominous sounds came from the entrance, which had served them but so brief a time gone by, and Bruno knew that, even if they had escaped being seen while thus attempting to win such a gruesome refuge, the possibility of their having elected just such a line of flight had occurred to some of the redskins. Gillespie heard the heavy doors open, then clang to again. He was fairly confident that some of the Aztecs had entered, although as yet the utter darkness hindered further recognition. "'What next, Ixley?' he whispered, lips almost touching the face of his young guide, as they stood close together in the murk. "'They can't take me alive. Is it fight, or—' "'No fight yet,' gently breathed the Aztec in turn. "'They look. That not make sure fine. They try see.' We try not see all time. They come, we go, like this. Catching a hand within his own clasp, Ixley led Bruno away in that utter darkness, seemingly well acquainted with the lay of the ground, although it quickly became evident that there must be more than one direct passage. Bruno felt convinced that there were other chambers turning at right angles to their present course, though it might have bothered the young man to give entirely satisfactory reasons for such belief. Ixley did not flee fast nor far, in that first spurt pausing shortly to turn face towards the rear, a low musical chuckle coming through his lips. "'They come, look, cut no eyes for seeing dark,' he explained, barely loud enough for Bruno to catch his meaning. "'We play fool, them all. That be fun. Him fun all time over.' 
Ixley was scarcely as precise of speech while under the influence of excitement as when he had ample time in which to pick and choose his words, but there was little room for mistaking his meaning, which, after all, is fairly sufficient. But this time the young brave was in error, for only a few moments later both fugitives caught sight of a dim light in hurried motion far towards the entrance to these underground crypts. That warned them of added peril, and Exley's chuckle died abruptly away. "'They'll fetch us now,' grimly muttered Bruno, shaking his fairly athletic shoulders and fingering the knife at his belt, as though making preparations for an inevitable struggle. "'All right. They may kill, but I'll furnish some red paint for my tombstone anyway.' It may be doubted whether Ixley fully appreciated this conclusion, yet he divined something of what was spoken, and made swift response. "'No kill yet. They look. We hide. Maybe not find. Maybe play fool all over, yes.' "'Where can we hide that lights won't ferret us out, though? If a fellow might only have the same advantage, here in this darkness I'm not worth a sick kitten.' Just a bit disgustedly came the words, but Bruno was not giving over in weak despair. No matter how vast the odds might show against him, he would put up a gallant fight as long as he could lift his hand or strike a blow. Still, he was by no means anxious for the crisis to arrive. He would far rather run than fight, under existing circumstances, but whither and how? Ixley took it upon himself to solve the perplexing enigma, in a whisper bidding his white brother to follow with as little sound as might be, once more hurrying away through the gloomy blackness, which was by no means rendered more agreeable to Bruno by that fleeting glimpse of the dead men's bones. There was little room left for doubting the truth. Their presence in the death-cells surely was more than suspected, judging from the actions of yonder redskins, who flashed the light over and into each angle and corner, each niche and jog, where a human being might possibly seek concealment. There were not so many in number, but still a larger force than could well be met with success by two youths, even granting that Ixley would turn lethal weapons against his own people, which Bruno felt was by no means a settled fact. For some little time the young men kept without that limited circle of light, watching each movement made by the searchers, and at the same time taking care that none of the little party stole a dangerous march upon them by hastening in advance of the lights. Ixley apparently enjoyed the affair much as a child might a successful game of I spy, for he emitted occasional chuckles and let fall soft whispers which, if caught by other ears, certainly would not have deeply benefited the fugitives when captured. Thanks to that slow progress rendered thus by the care and minuteness of the search, Bruno began to marvel at the extent of the catacombs, and almost involuntarily calculate how many centuries it must have taken to accumulate such enormous quantities of remains. For, thanks to yonder prying light, he could see how high those grim relics of perishing mortality were piled up in tears, with here and there upright skeletons in position of greater prominence. Perhaps Gillespie might have been better able to appreciate Ixley's amusement had he even an inkling as to how this game of hide-and-go-seek was fated to end. That an end must come, eventually, was a foregone conclusion. And then— He ventured to ask Ixley how they were to escape detection when they could retreat no farther. 
but before an answer could be fairly shaped, that end seemed actually upon them. Without sound or warning of any sort, another bright light showed at a considerable distance in the opposite direction, and as Bruno stared that way, he made out several armed warriors who appeared to be engaged in that same occupation, searching that city of the dead for the living. Thus caught between two fires there seemed only one course to pursue, and with the courage of his fathers Bruno spoke in low grim tones to his young guide. "'No use for you to join in the mix, Ixley. I'll do the best I know how, but if I can't make the riffle, if I go down for good and all, I ask you to convey the news to my friends. You will.' But Ixley was not at the end of his resources, and gripping a wrist, he urged Bruno towards yonder second light, speaking hastily as they moved along towards the edge of that wide passage. "'No fight yet. Best hide. Maybe no find. Dad best try first. Then Ixley fight like white brother fast.' there was time for scant speech, for just then the two parties seemed for the first time to catch sight of each other, and while the brave bearing the rude lantern still maintained his slow movements, searching well as he came, the other Indians came in advance, giving the fugitives barely time in which to crouch down under temporary cover. The moment these enemies had passed them by, Ixley urged Bruno on, then in swift whispers instructed him how to perfect his hiding, even aiding the young pale-face into one of the upright crypts, back of a grim skeleton, the mouldering blanket assisting in covering the one of flesh and blood. After like fashion the Aztecs sought cover on the opposite side of the passage, None too quickly, either, for now the single searcher drew dangerously nigh, peering into every practicable hiding-place on either side, before moving onward. Little by little he drew closer, while the other band of searchers apparently turned off into a side passage, or large chamber, since nothing could be seen or heard of them by the fugitives. In all probability, Ixley's bold ruse would have proved a complete success, for the Aztec warrior showed no suspicion as he drew nearer, but it was not to be thus. Fairly holding his breath, lest he disturb some of the dry bones immediately in front of himself, Bruno waited and hoped only to feel his blood chill and his heart fail him as a sickening horror crept over his brain, nor was that the only creeping thing worse luck. Past all room for doubting, his entrance into that crypt had disturbed the repose of a snake of some description, for now he could feel the loathsome reptile crawling slowly up his back, turning the skin beneath to scorching ice in its horrid passage. One horrible nightmare minute that lasted, then the serpent paused upon his shoulder and biceps, touching his cheek with nose, then drawing back its ugly head to give an ominous hiss. Human flesh and blood could endure no more, and Bruno flung the snake violently off, striking forcibly against that mass of dry bones as he did so. With a rattling clatter, the skeleton lost its frail coherence, and tumbled outward, leaving Bruno fairly exposed within the niche. With a cry, the Aztec warrior turned in that direction, but ere he could fetch his light to bear upon the right spot, Ixley sprung forth to the rescue, hooting like a frightened owl as he dashed the light to earth, and at the same time deftly tripping the Indian headlong. 
Swift as thought itself, he followed up the advantage thus won, smiting the fallen brave heavily upon the crown with a clubbed thigh-bone, depriving him of sensibility for the time being at least, and then snatching up the still-burning light he called in guarded tones to his white friend. "'Come, brother, play-hunt now. Fast, not stop here. Dat bad for you, see by dem so soon. Dat got you go, like this way.' Scarcely realizing just what fresh ruse the Aztec had in mind, but far from recovered from that horrible fear of death from poisonous fangs, Gillespie submitted, Ixley hurrying him away, turning off into what appeared to be a side passage, less spacious than that to which they had until then confined their retreat. The young Aztec hastily explained his present scheme, which was to play the role of searchers as well, and scarcely had he made that project known— then another difficult test was offered their courage. End of chapter 26 Chapter 27 Penetrating Grim Secrets of the Lost City This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lost City by Joseph E. Badger, Jr. Chapter 27 Penetrating Grim Secrets Bruno caught an imperfect view of moving figures at no great distance ahead, but ere he could fairly decide just what they might be, his red-skinned guide swiftly whispered, "'More come, look! You don't say! Ixley fool them! Easy!' Making not the slightest attempt to avoid the issue, the young Aztec stepped a little in advance of Gillespie, thus casting him into partial eclipse, speaking briskly as he met the two Indians, only one of whom bore a light. "'It is trouble for nothing, brothers. There is no sign here. If he saw aught, twas in a dream, I think. And now, hark!' Even there, in the subterranean recesses, something of the wildly excited uproar, which followed Waldo's rash attempt to go a-fishing after his fellow-men, and the sighting of that awful air-demon by the Indians could be heard, and, without divining its actual import, Ixley adroitly turned it to his own advantage. "'They have found the strange dog without!' he cried sharply. "'Come, my brothers, else we will be too late, for hasten all!' But only one half of the present group obeyed, the two Indians dashing at full speed towards the main entrance to the City of the Dead, leaving Bruno behind wholly unsuspected, and Ixley chuckling gleefully over the favourable change in the situation. "'Dago, we come. This way, brother,' the Aztec spoke, moving in the opposite direction, followed willingly enough by the now pretty well bewildered pale-face. "'Whither are we going?' Bruno felt impelled to ask, after a few moments more of blind obedience, "'How are we going to get out? And my friends, they must have been alarmed by that great drum!' Ixley made response by touch rather than in words, and giving his companion barely time sufficient to read aright that look of warning he extinguished the light, leaving themselves in complete darkness. Naturally anticipating fresh danger, Bruno strained his ears to catch at least an inkling of its precise nature, ere the trouble could fairly close in. But only silence surrounded them, silence and an almost palpable gloom. "'Not cat,' assured Exley in a soft-toned whisper, as he divined the expectations entertained by his comrade in peril. "'Nobody come now. I'll go and see what noise about yonder. You, me, all right. Best make no big talk, though. Come see.' 
Apparently the young Aztec found it no easy matter to elect words which should fairly convey his desired meaning, and abruptly giving over the effort, he moved on, one hand lightly closed upon Bruno's wrist, to guard against possible separation in that utter darkness. Nothing further was said until Ixley again came to a halt, Gillespie giving a low exclamation as he felt what appeared to be a blank wall before them. Was this no thoroughfare? Were they blocked in to perish of starvation unless earlier discovered by the red-skinned searchers? Far from agreeable thoughts, yet such swiftly flashed across the young man's brain, lending an echo of harshness to his voice as he spoke. "'Where are we now, Ixley? How are we going to get out of this? If you have led me into a trap—' Fingertips lightly brushed his lips, then the Aztec explained as well he was able, thanks to his limited vocabulary. Escape from the catacombs by the same route they had taken in seeking refuge there was entirely out of the question, even though the redskins might have abandoned the search in that precise quarter for the time being, thanks to the sudden alarm which had broken forth in the valley, almost certainly there would be an armed guard so stationed as to intercept any or all persons who might so attempt to emerge. This much Bruno gathered, then took his turn at the verbal oars. "'But we can't stay here, man, dear. Nothing to eat or to drink, and my friends worrying over us outside. We've got to get out, I have, at any rate. The only question is just how and where.' "'Dare one way go.' Ixley made reply, even his lowered tones betraying more than ordinary impressiveness, Bruno fancied. Maybe easy, maybe hard. Find out when try. We go this way. Best be still, though. Bruno was ready enough to promise all that, just so action was being taken, his uneasiness being by far too deep for rest or repose, more on account of his uncle and his brother, though, than for his own safety. He had not yet lost hope of extrication from the perils which surely surrounded them, not quite abandoned hope of rescuing the children of the sun as well. Turning abruptly to the left, Ixley led the way into what appeared, through the senses of touch and hearing, to be a narrow winding tunnel, which presently took an upward incline, then broadened into a chamber of greater or lesser dimensions. The faint echoes told Gillespie there was an enlargement of some description but the utter darkness veiled all else. Barely had the two adventurous youths come to a pause, then dull, uncertain sounds came from almost directly above their heads, and after listening for a brief space, Ixley disappointedly breathed a fear that they would have to wait for the time being. "'Why, what's going on up yonder? And where are we, anyway?' Beneath the great Tuakalili, Ixley made answer in his disjointed way of speaking. There the evil-minded Paba, Tlacopa, reigned supreme, and there, almost directly above their heads, stood the sacrificial stone, upon whose flat surface the sun-children would be doomed to suffer the last penalty, provided Tlacopa won his wicked will. Bruno thrilled to his centre with fierce indignation, as he little by little gathered this information— perish by such hideous methods, give up her fair young life. For, rather queerly, considering that Ixley spoke of both Victor and Glady, he now had thought of, could see but that one lovely face and shrinking figure, face and form of the daughter alone. Discovery might have come all too soon, 
but for Ixley slipping a palm over those indignant lips, and thus smothering the outbreak, which the young man could not avoid, then, recalled to ordinary prudence, Bruno talked and listened by turns. Ixley contrived to make his white brother understand just how they were situated at the time, in a secret channel of communication with the great war-temple, through which sanctuary he had hoped to lead his friend, thence to escape from the valley itself if a favourable chance should offer. Now their way was barred, and they could only wait, unless would Bruno keep close guard over his tongue? Yes, anything rather than remain wholly idle like this. Adding a few minor cautions, Ixley took Gillespie by a wrist, and stole noiselessly forward, climbing upward, over, and into a contrivance, which Bruno vainly sought to recognize by the sense of touch, but giving a thrill of amazement when his guide paused long enough to whisper in his nearest ear, "'Tis war-god, buddy. Stand up in Tokalili, look on Killstone. Wait, you see, here, all that now. Thanks to the close association of that night with all its attendant perils, Bruno was growing fairly skilful in interpreting the broken sentences of his copper-hued chum, and he now knew they were moving about within the hollow image of the Aztecan war-god, Huatzilopochitl, while— he caught sight of several small apertures through which yellow light came dimly, and almost without thinking applied his eyes to the one most convenient, peering forth upon the broad sacrificial stone, with its foul blood-stained surface, the little channels intended to drain off the superfluous hemorrhage, together with the gloomy repulsive surroundings, and too a most abominable stench appeared to rise from the altar of death, and Bruno shrunk back with a shiver of disgust. "'No talk loud!' softly breathed Ixley, gripping an arm with force. "'They kill if fight now. Look, that want Lakopa, big priest you call. Dem help papa fool all people, so.' Although his meaning was not fully apparent, Bruno caught renewed interest, and once more peered forth upon the scene, weird and impressive enough even from a Christian point of view. Headed by Tlacopa, a ceremony of some description was taking place, lesser priests and other acolytes performing their various parts, the incantations rising now loudly, now sinking to a hollow monotone, the whole affair being none the less absorbing when Bruno remembered that, perhaps it might have some connection with the vile plots against the sun-children, if not endangering life itself. Gillespie, likewise, took note of various other graven images, among them one of the not less hideous war-goddess, Tiyoyayomiki, or divine war-death, fitting consort for the mighty hummingbird himself. Meanwhile, Ixley, who appeared to look upon the whole affair as a more or less jolly good jest at the expense of his superstitious people, took occasion to give his white brother a few pointers, letting him see how easy it was for false oracles to be manufactured to order, how certain the lightest wishes of the head-priest were to find speedy fulfilment at all times. While thus divulging part of the mysteries of the temple, that ceremony reached a finale, and the little crowd slowly melted away, leaving but Lacopa and a select few of his trusted henchmen, and Ixley certainly caught enough of their talk to alter his manner most materially. "'Come quick!' 
he fiercely whispered in Bruno's ear, gripping an arm and fairly forcing the young man to accompany his retreat. Not another word was spoken before the lower level was reached, and then Gillespie broke the ice, asking what was the matter. Dark though it was all around them, Bruno could tell by sense of touch that his guide was powerfully agitated, and though Ixley clearly hesitated before imparting the asked for information, persistence won the point, and then— Imperfectly, though that discovery was set forth, Gillespie contrived to gather this much. Tlacopa decreed that the sun-children should be brought to trial, if not to actual execution, when the morning sun arose. "'Never!' fiercely vowed Bruno, all on fire as he recalled that more than fair face. "'Never, while I leave and draw breath!' End of chapter 27「XXVIII. Brought Before the Gods of the Lost City This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lost City by Joseph E. Badger, Jr. Chapter Twenty-Eight, Brought Before the Gods Once again, Azotl the red heron was bowing humbly before the children of the sun-god, but now there was stern grief, impressed visage, rather than pure devotion, such as one might feel at the feet of a divinity. And the face of Victo was unusually pale, her lips tightly compressed to keep them from trembling too visibly, while her arm clasped Gladys with almost fierce love in its warm strength. Azotl glanced upwards for a moment, then slowly spoke. "'Such are the commands laid upon thy captain of guards, daughter of Quetzal, the fair god. He hath been commanded to fetch Victor and Gladi to the Teocalili, there to be—no!' With an outbreak of fierce rebellion, drawing his superb figure erect, and gripping javelin until the springy ash quivered, as though suddenly winning life for itself— the gods lie. They are speaking falsely, or—or or the Paba lies, when trying to thus interpret the oracle. Gladys shrunk away, but her mother stood firm, seeming to gain in coolness and nerve what this ardent servant was losing. "'It must be thus, my good friend,' she spoke, in low, even tones. "'The word hath come to a soldier, and obedience is his first duty.' not when obedience means leading to sacrifice. That may never come, good Azotl. We have committed no sin, in deed or in thought. The mother of gods will not lay claim to an innocent victim. Or even, then, the right shall triumph. Tlacopa is powerful, but hath Victor no influence. Lord Hua may throw his influence to the wrong side, but hath truth no answer. If not truth, then death sternly vowed the captain of the bodyguard. If Donatiwa fails to punish the enemies of his daughter, then this right arm shall hurl the false prince down, Miklantwetli, grim lord of the underworld. "'What is it all about, mother?' murmured Gladys, 
clinging in sore fright to the side of her Amazonian relative. "'Surely the people will not! Surely we need not go forth to—' A mother's kiss closed those quivering lips, and then, with far more assurance than she really could find in her heart, Victoria bade her child fear nothing, that all would come aright in a brief while. Little by little, the maiden's terrors were calmed, and then she took position by her parent's side, with a greater display of nerve than might have been anticipated. Through all, Azotl, waited, fiercely silent, held from open rebellion, only by the influence of the woman whose very life was now menaced. And as the sun-children stood before him, in readiness to comply with the commands issued by those in high authority, the red heron broke bonds. "'Say but one word, daughter of Quetzal, and all this shall never come to pass. Give me but permission to—' What wouldst thou do, good Azotl? Surround the sun-children with their loyal bodyguard, and defend them, while one brave might strike blow or hold shield in front of their sacred charge. Slowly yet fiercely declared the captain, eyes telling how dearly he longed to receive that permission. But Victo shook her head in slow negation. She was still cool of brain enough to realize how fatal such course would be in the end. If one deadly blow should be dealt, the end could be but one—annihilation to both defended and defenders. Then, too, she recalled the wondrous tidings brought the evening before by Ixtli and his comrade. Friends were seeking to rescue them, and if only time might be won, it must be played for then. And so his petition finally denied, with no other course left open to take— the red heron summoned his picked band and, with the sun-children in their midst, left the temple, crossed the plain, and slowly marched into the war-gods Teokalili. In awed silence a vast number of Aztecs followed that little procession, silent as they, yet clearly anticipating events of far more than ordinary importance. And thus the foredoomed women were taken before the great stone of sacrifice, whereupon lay a snow-white lamb, bound past the possibility of struggling. Close beside the prepared sacrifice stood the head-priest, Tlacopa, robed for the awesome ceremony, sacrificial knife in hand, temples crowned as customs dictated, eyes blazing as vividly as they might if backed by living fire. Not far distant stood Watson, head bandaged and face none the better looking for his floundering fall when his sash gave way the evening before. And as he caught the passing gaze of the woman whom he had so basely persecuted, a repulsive smile showed itself the grin of a veritable fiend in human guise. Sternly cold and outwardly unmoved, the captain of guards performed his sworn duty, then in grim silence awaited the end. And in like manner each man of that carefully selected band rested upon his arms. A brief pause, during which the utter silence grew actually oppressive, then the head-priest lifted a hand as though commanding full attention before he should speak. Then, in tones which were by no means loud, yet which were modulated so as to fill that expanse most perfectly, Tlacopa, 
recited the grave accusations brought against the false children of the mighty sun-god. To their evil influence he attributed the comparative failure of crops which had now cursed their fair people throughout the past years. Unto them, he claimed, belonged the evil credit of many untimely deaths which had covered so many proud heads with the ashes of mourning and of despair. To their door might be traced all of misfortune with which the favored children of the mighty gods had been so sorely afflicted. In proud silence, Victo listened to this deliberate arraignment, not deigning to interpose denial or offer plea in self-defense, until the Paba was clearly at an end. And even then she gazed upon Tlacopa with eyes of scorn and lips which curled with contempt. A low murmur from the eager crowd told how anxious they were to hear more, and taking her cue from that, Victo made a graceful motion with her white hand, following it by words that sounded rarely sweet in their deep mellowness after the harsh dry notes of the papa. "'Who dares to bring such base charges against the daughters of Quetzal? Who are our accusers, head-priest?' Did Tilakopa shrink from that queenly presence? If so, twas but another cunning device intended to pave the way to complete success, to catch the fickle fancy of his audience, by rendering his retort all the more effective. "'Who dares accuse us of wrongdoing?' again demanded the Amazonian mother, speaking for her child as well, around whose waist her left arm was clinging as a needed support." "'The mother of all the gods,' forcibly replied the priest, now casting aside all presence of timidity, and gazing into that proud face, with eyes which were filled with fire of hatred and jealousy. "'The all-powerful Sentiotl hath made known the awful truth through the lips of the infallible oracle, my children. She hath declared that no smile shall be turned towards the children of the Anwak.' so long as false prophets disgrace this great city. She hath demanded the sacrifice. "'Who can bear witness to any such demand?' sternly interposed the captain of the bodyguard, unable to listen longer in silence. Tlacopa flashed an evil look his way, but from the audience issued another murmur, rising louder until it took upon itself the shape of words, demanding indubitable proof that the oracle had indeed spoken thus. And no longer daring to rely upon his own authority, Tlacopa turned to the sacrificial stone whereupon lay the helpless lamb, bowing knee and lifting face as he volubly repeated the customary invocation— just then it appeared far more nearly an incantation. Having thus complied with all the requirements of his office, the Paba first kissed his blade of sacrifice, then seized the lamp and turned it upon its back, one hand holding it helpless, while with the other he ripped the poor beast wide from throat to tail, then, making a swift cross-slash, laid bare the cavity, and exposed the quivering heart. Dropping his knife, Dlacopa grasped this vital organ, fiercely tearing it away, drawing back where all might see, as he lifted the heart on high for inspection. 
One brief look appeared to satisfy his needs, for he gave a fierce shout as he hurled the bleeding heart towards the accused, then cried, "'An omen! An omen! The mother of the gods claims her victims!' End of chapter 28「Contrary to the expectations of Ixley, escape by way of the war-god's temple was barred throughout the remainder of that eventful night. Tlacopa, the head priest, together with a number of his acolytes, varying as to force, yet ever too powerful for any two men to force a passage contrary to the will of their leader, remained on duty each and every hour and hence it came to pass that those early hours found our fugitives still beneath the temple, worn through loss of sleep and stress of anxiety, yet firmly resolved not to permit that intended outrage without at least striking one fair blow for the children of the sun. Slowly enough the time passed, yet it could hardly be called monotonous. Whenever wearied of their darksome waiting, the young men would steal again into the hollow image of Whitzel, there to utilize the cunningly arranged peepholes, now looking out upon the priests, or listening to catch such words as fell from the lips of those nearest the stone of sacrifice. In this manner Ixley contrived to pick up quite a little fund of information, mainly through the confidences reposed in a certain favoured few of the brotherhood by the chief papa. And this, in turn, filtered through his lips after the chums once again retreated to the lower regions for both safety and comfort. And then Bruno learned how the adventurous young Aztec, far less superstitious than the vast majority of his people, thanks to the kindly teaching of Victo, child of Quetzal, had in his explorations discovered so many secrets of the temple and priesthood, secrets which he now had no scruple in communicating to another of a different race. Ixley told how, on various occasions, he had lurked behind the scenes while the miraculous oracle was delivering fiat or prophecy, and then he told his white brother how Tlacopa meant to completely confound the children of the sun when once brought before the gods. He tells Levoisay, Slave come this way, hide in war god, wait for time, then tell Tlacopa's words. A most infernal scheme, yet the danger of which Bruno could readily recognize, together with the serious difficulty of refuting any such supernatural evidence. Surely your people will not suffer a few dirty curs to do such horrible wrong to ladies like. Why, Ixley, even the gods you fellows bow the knee to in worship ought to rise up in their defense. But Ixley merely sighed, then spoke in sad tones, explaining how he alone had been taken wholly into the confidence of the sun-children, 
even the captain of their guards knew Victo and Gladi, as but descendants of the great fair god whom the audacious trickery of a rival sent far away from the land of his favoured people, to find an abiding place in the sun itself. He good brave, he die for them easy, but he not know all. He think drop from sun to lead people back to light. If think not so, dat make face turn black, dat make mad come, great big. As was ever the case when his feelings seemed deeply stirred, Ixley found it difficult to fully or fairly explain his sentiments, but Bruno caught sufficient of his meaning to give a fair guess at the rest. He found a ray of hope in the belief that Azotl at least would defend the children of the sun, and Ixley predicted with apparent confidence that the members of the bodyguard would stand firm under the Red Heron's leadership. Keeping thus upon the alert throughout the remainder of that night, the young men were able to take prompt action when the crisis drew nigh. Ixley caught the first inkling of what was coming, and hastily sent Bruno away from the peepholes, dropping a word in his ear as they both prepared for clean work. Through a secret entrance, shaped amidst the drapery which surrounded the pedestal of the mighty Huitzil, a slave of the temple crept to play the part of echo to Lakopa's evil will, and scarcely had he secured what was to be a place of waiting and watching than the attack was made from out the darkness. Ixley flung his tunic over the slave's head, twisting both ends tightly about his throat, effectually smothering all attempt at crying aloud for aid, while Bruno clasped arms about his middle, holding hands powerless to strike or to draw weapon. A brief struggle, which produced scarcely any noise, certainly not sufficient to reach the ears of priest or helper. Then the trembling, unnerved slave was bundled down that narrow passage to be dumped in a remote corner, and there effectually bound and gagged by the young men. All this was performed without hitch or mishap, and then, nerved to fighting pitch, Ixley and Bruno went back beneath the stone of sacrifice, resolved to play their part to the end in manful fashion. There was no further fear of intrusion, for, of course, Lacopa would never think of endangering his own evil scheme by risking an exposure such as would follow discovery of his slave oracle. As Ixley truly said, such discovery would end in the Pabas being slain by his befooled people. Their patience was sorely tried even then, though a goodly portion of the blame belonged to their fears for the sun-children rather than to the actual length of waiting. But then, amidst the solemn invocations led by the high priest, the bodyguard marched into the hall of sacrifice, and Bruno caught his breath sharply as he beheld Gladys, not her mother just then, for the first minute only, Gladys. Then came the bitter denunciation by Telacopa, followed by the coldly dignified words of Victo, after which the innocent lamb yielded up its life in order that the future might be predicted through the still quivering heart. With a fiercely exultant cry, Tlacopa hurled the vital organ towards the accused, it striking the mother upon an arm, then glancing further to leave an ugly smear upon the daughter's shoulder, ere falling among the eager multitude, who fought and struggled to secure at least a morsel of the hideous thing. "'Behold! The gods hath marked their own!' cried the high priest, his harsh tones fairly filling the hall of sacrifice. 
They are guilty of all crimes laid at their door. They merit death a thousandfold. The mother of gods hath spoken. To whom but thou, Tlacopa? sternly cried the captain of the guards, as he stood firm, in spite of the ominous sounds which were rising from the rear as well as from either side. She hath spoken unto me as her worthy representative on earth. And there are those who say much religion hath turned thy brain, good Tlacopa, retorted Azotl, holding his temper fairly well under control, yet with blazing eyes and stiffening sinews. Are thy ears alone to receive such important communications as— Silence, thou scoffer! fiercely cried the high priest, lifting quivering hands on high, as though about to call down the thunders of an outraged deity upon that impious head. She who hath spoken once may deign to speak again. Hearken! Hear the oracle! Doubtless this was cue for the slave of the temple to repeat the words placed within its mouth, but that slave was literally unable to speak a word for himself, let alone others. Yet the oracle was not wholly silenced. "'Talk out, or I will!' fiercely muttered Bruno, giving Ixley a violent punch in the side. "'Talk out for the sun-children!' The young Aztec needed no further prompting, loving Victo and Gladi as he did, hating and despising the high priest. And in shrill, clear tones came the wondrous oracle. Tlacopa lies! Tlacopa is an evil dog, the mother of the gods loves, and will defend her friends, the children of the great and good Quetzal. How much more, Ixley might have said, had he been granted further grace, will never be known. Tlacopa shrank away from the speaking statue as from a living death, but then he rallied, savagely thundering. "'Tis a lying oracle! "'Tis an evil impostor who has an omen, a true omen, my children! "'The evil ones hath been branded for the knife. "'Seize them to the sacrifice!' "'That vicious cry was swiftly taken up, "'but the bodyguard closed in around the menaced women, "'presenting arms to all that maddened horde, "'while their captain sternly warned all good people "'to fall aside and make way for the children of the sun.' Then that secret entrance was flung wide, permitting two excited young men to issue, Tlacopa reeling aside from a blow dealt him by Bruno's clenched fist, as that worthy hastened to join forces with the bodyguard. End of chapter 29《Against Overwhelming Odds of the Lost City》This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lost City by Joseph E. Badger, Jr. Chapter 30 Against Overwhelming Odds This double appearance for Ixley kept fair pace with his hot-headed white brother, caused no little stir, and added considerable to the partial bewilderment which had fallen over that audience. Prince Hua shouted forth savage threats, 
but he, as well as the papa, was fairly demoralized for the moment by the totally unexpected failure of their carefully laid schemes. Seeing his chance, Azotl bade his men escort the sun-children from the Hall of Sacrifice back to their own abiding place, barely noticing his son, and paying no heed at all to the disguised pale-face. With spears ready for stroke or parry as occasion might demand, the guard faced about and slowly moved away from the great stone of sacrifice, rigid of face, cool of nerve, ready to die if must be, yet never once thinking of disobedience to orders or of playing cur to save life. Almost involuntarily the crowd parted before that measured advance, giving way until a fair pathway lay open, along which the bodyguard moved with neither haste nor hesitation, outwardly ignorant of the fact that ugly cries and dangerous gestures were coming thicker and faster their way. Scores of other voices caught up the fierce cry given by the head-priest, and now the temple was ringing throughout with demands that the false sun-children should pay full penalty, should be hailed to the sacrificial stone, there to purge themselves without further delay. Others showed an inclination to favor the descendants of Quetzal, and thus the widely conflicting shouts and cries formed a medley which was fairly deafening. For one of his fierce temper, the Red Heron showed a marvellous coolness throughout that perilous retreat, and never more than during the first few seconds. Then a single injudicious word or too hasty movement might easily have precipitated a fight, where the vast audience would surely have brought disaster, whether the majority so willed or not. Holding his men well in hand, moving only as rapidly as prudence justified, yet losing neither time nor ground, where both were of such vital importance, Azotl forced a passage from the great hall of sacrifice, down to the level, then out into the open air, where one could see and fight if needs be. Through all this, Bruno Gillespie held the position he had taken, one hand gripping tightly his maqua whittle, but placing his main dependence upon the revolver which nestled conveniently within the folds of his sash, one nervous forefinger touching the curved trigger. He could not help seeing that the danger was great. He felt certain that they could not retreat much farther without coming to blows, when the odds would be overwhelmingly against them. Yet never for an instant did he regret having taken such a decided step. Not for one moment did he give thought to himself. Almost within reach of his hand, if extended at the length of his arm, moved the fair maiden whose face and form had made so deep an impression upon his mind and his heart. She was in peril. She needed aid. That was enough. Then the briefly stunned Tlacopa rushed forth from his desecrated temple, wildly flourishing his arms, furiously denouncing both the sun-children and their bodyguard, thundering forth the curses of all the gods upon the heads of those who refrained from arresting the evil ones. "'The mighty mother of gods calls for her own! Seize them! Strike down the impious dogs who dare attempt to defraud our mother! Seize them! To the sacrifice! To the sacrifice!' Equally loud of voice, the prince, Pua, came leaping down to the sandy level, 
urging his people to the assault, offering almost fabulous sums as reward for the brave Aztec whose arm should lay yonder traitorous red heron prone in the dust. The crisis came, and the dogs of war were let loose. An arrow whizzed narrowly past the feathered helmet worn by the captain of the guards. A stone came humming out of sling, to be deftly dashed aside by Azotl's shield, ere it could fairly smite that gold-crowned head, as outwardly calm and composed. Victo aided her trembling daughter on towards the temple of the sun-god, where alone they might look for safety. But would it be found even there? No, for at savage howl from lips of the high priest, a strong force of armed redskins took up position at the Teokalili, blocking each one of the four flights of stone steps in order to intercept the bodyguard, while still closer pressed the yelling, screeching, frantic heathen of both sexes and all ages. Azotl saw how he had been flanked, but made no sign, even while slightly turning course for another temple at less distance, a single word being sufficient to post his true hearts. So far not a single blow had been struck by the retreating party, although great provocation had been given them. More than one of their number was bleeding, yet all were afoot, and still capable of holding ranks. Then, bravest of the brave, a man among men in spite of his tender years, Ixley laid down his life in defense of his idolized Victo. From one of that maddened rabble came a heavy stone, flung with all the power of a sinewy arm and great sling. Smitten fairly between the eyes, the poor lad's skull was crushed, as a giant hand might mash an eggshell. One gasping sigh, then the lad sunk to earth, dead ere he could fairly measure his length thereupon. For a single instant Azotl seemed as one stupefied, but then an awful uproar burst from his laboring lungs, and he hurled his heavy javelin full at yonder murderer, winging it with a father's curses. Swift flew the dart, but fully as quickly sank that varlet, the head of the spear scraping his skull to pass on and smite with death, one even more evil, if that might be. Full in the throat, Lakopa was stricken, the broad blade of copper tearing a passage through, and the shaft following after for the greater portion of its length. Unable to scream, though his visage was hideously distorted by mingled fear and agony, the high priest caught the wood in both hands, even as he reeled to partly turn, then fall upon his face, dead, thrice dead. With a wild thrill of grief and horror, Bruno Gillespie saw his red brother reel in cruel death, and, for the moment heedless of his own peril which surely was doubled thereby, he sprang that way to stoop and catch that quivering shape in his eager hands. Too late, save to show his comradeship, that heavy stone had only too surely performed its grim mission. Dead, poor lad, dead, while seeking to save another. With a fierce cry of angry mourning, Bruno lifted the mutilated corpse in his arms, trying to toss it over a shoulder to bear away from risk of trampling under the heedless feet of the yelling heathen, but it was not to be. Another stone smote his arm near the elbow, breaking no bone, yet so benumbing the members to temporarily disable it, causing that precious burden to drop to earth once more. 
Then came an awful outcry from the people whom the sight of their high priest, reeling in death, had, for a few fleeting seconds, fairly stupefied. Cries which meant much to the living, and before which even that band of true hearts receded with slightly quickened pace. With the others fell back Bruno, leaving his hand wood lying beside the lifeless corpse of his red-skinned brother at heart, but drawing forth the weapon which he knew so much better how to use. The fierce lust of vengeance now seized upon him, heart and brain. He shouted forth grim defiance to that howling crew, and as the deadly missiles came in thickening clouds carrying death and wounds to the bodyguard of the sun-children, he opened fire, shooting to kill. Entirely without firearms themselves, and in all probability ignorant of such an instrument of destruction, this might have produced a far more beneficial result under other circumstances. As it was now, few, if any, took heed of what they could not hear above that awful tumult, and those who felt the boring lead never rose up to give their testimony. Closer crowded the superstition-ridden heathen, showering missiles of all descriptions upon the bodyguard, confounding all with the one to whose javelin their head-priest owed his death, only to recoil once more, in fierce awe, as another victim of high rank paid forfeit his life for the death of Ixley, sole offspring of Azotol, the Red Heron. End of chapter 30 Chapter 31 Defending the Sun-Children of the Lost City This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lost City by Joseph E. Badger, Jr. Chapter 31 Defending the Sun-Children Louder than ever rose the voice of Lord Hua, after witnessing the fall of his ally, the High Priest. In spite of the great odds against the bodyguards, he began to fear lest his intended prey should even yet slip through his evil clutches. Fiercer than ever rang forth his curses and imprecations upon the head of the Aztec, who thus dared the vengeance of all the gods by lifting hand in arms against the anointed. And then, his own nerves strung by those very efforts to inspire others, Lord Hua forged nearer the front, eager to behold all his hated enemies crushed to earth as by a single stroke. And then, with vicious force, he hurled his javelin straight for the white throat of the sun-child, who had scorned his fawning advances, and only the ever-ready eye, the true hand, the strong arm of Azotl, again warded off grim death from the fair god's child. Caught upon that trusty shield one instant, the next turned toward its original owner, to quiver for the barest fraction of time in that vengeful grip, then, gloriously true to the hero's will and intent, sped the javelin home. Home to the false heart of false prince, grinding through skin and flesh and bones, cleaving that hot organ with broad blade of tempered copper, forcing one vicious screech from those tortured lungs, then causing that bulk to measure its length upon the blood-sprinkled sands. 
once again the heathen involuntarily recoiled as death claimed a high victim. Once more the band of true hearts slightly quickened their pace towards the temple now nigh at hand. Yet those lessened numbers never once betrayed fear, or doubt, or faltering. Grimly true to their trust, they fell back in the best of order, fighting as they moved, beating back the heathen hosts, as though each man was a god, and their strong arms a wall of steel. Here and there a true heart sank to earth, with a hand of death veiling his eyes, but he died in silence, no cry of fear, no moan of pain, no pitiful appeal for mercy at the hands of his maddened people. They knew their sworn duty, and like true hearts they trod that narrow path unto the very end. Although with gradually lessening numbers, the bodyguard remained practically the same. Still in a hollow square, with the children of the sun-god in the center, they slowly, doggedly, fell back, ever facing the ravening foe, ever moving shoulder to shoulder as a single man. Then, just as Bruno Gillespie was refilling his emptied revolver, the base of the tall pyramidal temple was won, and still protecting their fair-haired charge, the bodyguard ascended to the second terrace, beating back such of the wild rabble as pressed them too closely. Again that wonderful barking death came into play, and Bruno felt a strangely savage joy, gnawing at his heart as he saw more than one stalwart warrior reel dizzily back from his hot hail. "'For Ixley, you curs! That for Ixley! Down and eat dirt, dogs!' Scarcely could his own ears catch those sounds, although he shouted with the full power of his strong young lungs. So indescribably horrid was the din and tumult." up another flight of steps, then yet another, although the crazed rabble was not pressing them so very hard just now. Still their number forbade a fourfold division as yet, and Azotl feared lest the blood-ravening mob attempt to head off their flight by taking possession of the other stairs, thus being first to occupy yonder flat arena high above the earth whereupon he hoped to still protect the sun-children even though he must lay down his life to maintain their lease lacking an acknowledged leader the furious mass thought only of crushing the faithful band by mere weight of numbers taking no thought in advance else the end might well have been precipitated Arrows, spears, javelins, stones from slings, poured upon the bodyguard in almost countless numbers, now and then claiming a true heart as victim, whereupon the rabble howled afresh in drunken triumph, but where a single man died in the performance of his oath-bound duty, half a score heathen bit the dust and groveled out his remnant of life, yonder where most viciously trampled the feet of his fellow brutes. Pausing barely long enough to beat back the crazed rush, which came so close upon their retreat, the band of brothers would then slowly, doggedly fall back another of those mighty steps, with bared teeth and blazing eyes, longing to end all by one joyous plunge into the thick of their assailants, dying with their chosen dead. Five separate times that upward flight, and five times the grim pause to give death another portion of his red feast— Five times the blood-lapping mob dashed against the band of brothers, 
Five times they were hurled back, leaving more dead and dying there to mark the savage struggle. And then, sadly decimated at each halt, less in numbers as they passed farther from earth to climb nearer the blue sky, the survivors won the crest of the Teokalili, still fighting, still beating back such as followed their steps more closely. Ere that brilliant retreat began, twould have taken close ranks for the bodyguard to find standing room upon the temple-top. But now Azotl called for a division of his force, since there were four separate avenues of approach, of which the enemy was prompt to avail itself. "'For the sun-children, my brothers!' he cried, his voice rising even above that awful tumult and turmoil. "'Guard them with your lives!' little need to waste breath in so adjuring of all thus enlisted not one of the true hearts but proved worthy that trust not one brave who took care for his own life not one but was ready to die in order to save and thus far not a single wound had won so far as either child of the fair god even now, while the heathen were raging more viciously than ever, crowding each terrace and jamming each flight of steps to the verge of suffocation, strong arms were shielding them, true hearts were thinking how best they might be served. Time and again Azotl warded away winged death as it sought to claim Victo for its prey, and Bruno Gillespie, no whit less brave if somewhat lacking in warlike experience, made Gladys his special care, sending shot or dealing knife-thrust in her defence, barely giving thought to his own safety as a side-issue. Those broad terraces bore ugly pools and irregular patches of red blood, the various flights of stone steps grew slippery and uncertain as they likewise began to steam. Yet forward and upward pressed the howling mob, and desperately fought the doomed bodyguard above. Faster fly the deadly missiles, too many but far for even the keenest eye to guard against them all. One and another of those gallant defenders drop away, only because death had claimed them, not because of fear or of bodily anguish. Azotl staggers, an arrow is quivering in his broad bosom, but still he fights on, dealing death with each blow of his blood-tripping handwood. A stone lays open his brow, but heavier and faster plays his terrible weapon. A javelin flashes briefly, then the red copper vanishes from sight, while the ashen shaft slowly dies crimson, as the hot life-blood issues. A last dying stroke, and the red heron sinks at the feet of his adoration, faithful unto the last, his brave soul going forth to join with that of Ixley, the last of a gallant family. Victo gives a wild cry of vengeance, then snatches up bow and quiver where he let fall by a death-smitten warrior, and wings swift death to the slayer of her captain of the guard. An awful melee, where the odds were momentarily increasing, where one man was forced to do the work to do the work of a score, where death inevitable awaited all, unless a miracle should intervene, and that miracle. Shrilly rang forth the voice of Victoria Edgecombe, as, amidst the fury of battle, she caught sight of the airship swiftly darting that way through the clear atmosphere, bent on saving, if saving might be. 
The peculiar sound which attended the exploding of a dynamite cartridge heralded the death of more than one Aztec, and as the swift rattle of revolvers added to the uproar, there was an involuntary recoiling, a terrified shrinking which was employed to the best advantage by the air voyagers. The aerostat barely landed upon the top of the temple, before Cooper Edgecombe, with a wild scream of ecstatic joy, caught his wife in his arms and hurried her into the car, while Waldo and Uncle Phaeton aided Bruno. End of chapter 31 Chapter 32 Adieu to the Lost City of the Lost City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lost City by Joseph E. Badger, Jr. Chapter 32 Adieu to the Lost City and Bruno clung fast to the half-swooning maiden, so that two in place of one had to be assisted by uncle and nephew. Barely a score of seconds thus employed, then the gallant airship responded to the touch of master hand, and floated away from the bloody temple-top, with its increased burden, even as the last survivor of the sun-children's bodyguard sank down in death. A brief stupor came over the amazed heathen at sight of this awful air-devil, from whose side spat forth invisible death, but then, as they divined at least a portion of the truth, as they saw their longed-for victims thus borne bodily away, a revulsion came, and amid the most hideous howls and screeches, missiles flew towards the airship, menacing sudden death to all therein. But fate would not have it thus, and under the guidance of that master hand, the aeromotor flew higher and farther, quickly leaving behind all peril from javelins, darts, arrows, or stones from slings. And but one of their number had suffered aught. Bruno lay as one dead, blood flowing from a stone gash over an eye, but with one hand still gripping the butt of an empty pistol. His other arm was— around the sun-daughter's waist. And Gladys! First she shrunk back with a gasping cry of mingled fear and grief, only to quickly recover, and did she kiss that curiously spotted streaked face? Waldo afterwards declared she certainly did, for that a moment later he saw some of that moistened stain upon her quivering lips, but Waldo was ever extravagantly fond of a jest, and it may be, never mind. Not until the airship was safely past peril from yonder howling, raving lunatics in bronze did Professor Featherwit give heed to aught else, and by that time Victoria had left the ardent embrace of her husband to care for the elder Gillespie, whose single-hearted devotion all through that bloody retreat and bloodier struggle upon the temple had not wholly escaped her notice. Under such tender ministrations, Bruno quickly revived, and, after assuring himself that the children of the sun were alive and unharmed, while the lost city was now left far behind them, he huskily begged Uncle Phaeton to descend to earth, where he might find water enough to remove what remained of that loathsome disguise. But Professor Featherwood was far too shrewd a general to take any unnecessary risks. 
His last glimpse of yonder valley showed him hundreds of armed redskins rushing at top speed for the various passes by which that circle of hills could be overpassed, and he knew that chase would be made as long as the faintest ray of hope lured the Aztecs on. Thus it came that no halt was made until the inland reservoir was reached, where there could be no possible danger in making a temporary landing, and then Bruno stole away in hot haste, both to wash his person and to reclothe it in garments not quite so ridiculous as he now felt that savage rig must appear. "'Just as though the little woman wasn't used to see fit-outs like that, old man,' mocked Waldo the irrepressible. She'll go scare you in this rig, see if she doesn't now. Whether or no Gladys was actually frightened as Bruno made his appearance need not be decided here, but one fact remains. She acted a vast deal shyer than when she saw her gallant defender lying as if dead, with the red blood flowing over his face. Naturally enough, Cooper Edgecombe seemed fairly crazed by his joy. After so many long years of hopeless grief and wistful longing, to find his loved ones safe and sound far more beautiful than of yore, surely enough to turn the gravest of men into a laughing, jesting, voluble lad. But through it all ran a vein of sadness and of mourning. Neither Azotl the noble nor Ixley the gallant could so soon be forgotten, and more than one pair of eyes grew dim, more than one voice turned husky, as mention was made of both life and death, peace to their ashes. Heavily burdened as the airship now was, it would be unwise to add more, and so but a few minor articles were removed from the cavern, which had for so long sheltered the exiled aeronaut. Then the lever was touched, and the vessel rose slowly into air, making one leisurely circuit of the lake in order to show the children of the sun where their husband and father came so perilously nigh to entering upon a subterranean voyage to the faraway Pacific. And luckily, as it appeared, they were just in time to see that big suck drag another huge tree down into its ever-hungry maw. Not until the shades of night again began to settle over the earth did the professor permit another halt, but then many miles lay between that lost city of the Aztecs and their present position, and after selecting a pleasant spot for alighting, preparations for their first alfresco meal in company were begun. That proved to be a pleasant meal, and yet a more pleasant evening there in the wilderness, the first, but by no means the last, partaken of, for now they need no longer fear the heathen. Professor Featherwood was eager to more thoroughly explore that strange land. Still, the airship was inconveniently crowded, and that helped to cut explorations short. Then, too, Cooper Edgecombe was naturally eager to return to civilization once more, especially as he now had his heart's dearest desire, wife and daughter, each peerless in her peculiar way. Thus it came to pass that the terra incognita was abandoned for the time being, Professor Featherwit striking that wide path of ruin which marked the course of the tornado, then sailing leisurely towards the point of their initial departure, improving the opportunity by giving a neat little lecture concerning tornadoes in general, and that one in particular, which totally exploded so many absurd theories held up to date, was his proud assertion, and then he went on to explain just how and why and wherefore why dwell longer. 
The tale I set out to narrate is finished. The unknown land has been penetrated, and at least a portion of its marvels has been inspected, imperfectly, no doubt, but that may be attributed to circumstances which were past control. And should the still curious reader ask, is it all true? Is there actually such a place as the lost city? And are the people who live in that town really and truly the same race as once inhabited old Mexico? To all such, I can hardly do better than this. There was a territory of Washington. There is now a state of Washington. Within that state may be found a range, or system of mountains known to the world as the Olympics, and within the wide scope of country which lies nestling inside of that mountain system, may to this day be found. But, after all, a little parable which Waldo Gillespie read to a certain doubting Thomas, on the very evening of the day which changed Gladys Edgecombe's spinster into Mrs. Bruno Gillespie, may better serve in this connection. "'After all, I don't believe there is any such place or people,' declared doubting Thomas, nodding his head vigorously. "'Is that so?' mildly queried our good friend, Waldo. "'Let me give you a little pointer, old man. Once upon a time, a man by the name of John Smith was being tried for stealing a fat hog. The State brought three reputable witnesses to swear that they actually saw the theft committed, while the best defense could offer was to declare that they could produce at least a dozen honest citizens who would make oath to the fact that they did not witness the crime.' so moral we six fairly honest people saw both the lost city and its inhabitants scores of equally reliable persons never saw either which sort of evidence weighs the most my good fellow gentlemen of the jury the verdict rests with you end of chapter thirty two this is also the end of the lost city Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.